Hello, hello. Welcome to the Pal Show. Today, my guest is Jake Fishbein. Jake is an executive and personal coach who helps men make and navigate their most important choices. He's worked with men for over half a decade to inspire them to trust themselves, live authentically and vulnerably, and step into the arena in their personal and professional lives. Jake, I invited you on the show after a conscious conversation on nature versus nurture, where we realized it was less about it being either or and more about it being a dualistic balance. So I'd love for you to share a little about your thoughts on the matter and the yin and yang relationship of this centuries-long debate. Absolutely. Well, first, PV, it's great to be on the show. Really excited uh, to be here. I've seen the podcast popping up over the last few weeks and I'm thinking, ah, it'd be fun to be on that show. So, <laughs> so here we are. Uh, you manifested about, it. <laughs> I manifested it. I know. You even invited me before I could ask if it was a possibility. So look at that. Um, so I, I love this conversation. Um, I mean, to full transparency for our listeners, I'm not an expert in nature versus nurture. I'm not a scientist. Uh, but I think as a coach, I do a lot of work with human behavior and how people show up. And when we had this conscious conversation last week with Startup Island, what really became apparent to me is that it isn't one or the other, that it's not nature or nurture. It's a combination of both. And that inevitably our biology, our nature, plays a huge role in the choices we make, but it's our environment, our nurture, the cultures that we come from, who our parents were, who the people we surround us with, our values, that impact how we respond to our natural responses. And so it's this, this balance between who we are biologically as humans and how our bodies and our brain functions and our hormones, how those work, paired with the realities of our situation and how we then manifest you know, for example, fight versus flight looks different depending on which culture we're from, depending on which family we're born into. And so we might have the same biologic response as another person, but how we actually manifest that response is different. And so that's where it's this, this enmeshing of both nature and nurture. Right. So, okay. As a coach, I wonder, is there any pattern that you've noticed among people where you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's, human nature because for me i've noticed addiction that's that's human yes. nature and procrastination it's because you have to nurture those qualities Sadhguru says you know you raise cattle you don't raise people you cultivate a human being mm. and so like knowing what your nature is as a human being i think you can nurture the right parts i totally totally agree with that and i think the patterns i notice and I think of it when I really boil it down to, I think everything comes down to people seeking safety, people seeking security, people seeking belonging and that, and people seeking comfort. And you can look at addictive behaviors, procrastination. Those are usually about getting away from painful stimuli, feeling pleasure. I think people inevitably they're seeking that, that feeling of safety, whether it's avoiding challenging conversations, not talking about what needs to be discussed, not going into uncomfortable situations, all about, oh, I want to feel safe. And then this manifests as different behaviors. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of, of research on our ability for short-term and long-term thinking. And I think that's when we talk about addiction, we talk about procrastination. It's all this short-term wanting to feel that instant gratification now, whereas us as humans, we're actually brilliant at long-term thinking. It just requires more of that cultivation and that stepping back and using different parts of our brain. 
And so it's really, I think that the patterns that I notice, like to bring it back to your question, really are people seeking safety, people seeking the absence of pain, people seeking belonging. And I think one other one that is really consistent is people wanting to be right. And I think that leads to, I always say that people want to be miserable. Uh, people are committed to being miserable. And I think if you look at people and the conversations they have over and over again, so much is it, of it is being committed to a story that has them be right about something that makes them miserable. But it's easier to be right about that story than it is to let go of it and see the possibility of, of not being miserable. And I mean, I count, I've done that countless times. So it's not like I, I only look out and see human beings committed to misery. It's like, oh, I've been there. I've totally been committed to my stories that have made me miserable because it's easier to be miserable because it feels safe and familiar than it is to step into something new and potentially letting go of a narrative that maybe I've had for a really long time. So people wanting to be right, it's fascinating that you say that that's, it's part of human nature, because I wonder if that's also something we're kind of nurturing as a whole of society. I, and I saw that, especially in my postgraduate studies, where it was just, okay, there's information, and we're talking about information, we're trying to learn information, except underneath it all, the, like the nuances of language and the interactions of human beings was ego, a lot of ego. And so is that nature? Is that our nature to be wanting to be right? Or is that nurture? Because we're like nurturing that in our society, in our academic systems, like on a systemic level. I think it's both. And I think it, it does come down to it initially with nature, because being right is ultimately about being safe and feeling belonging. And so there was a really interesting uh, webinar I listened to through the World Business and Executive Coaching Summit. And I never say this researcher's name correctly. Her name's Dewey Quach. I know I'm butchering her name. She said it on the webinar. And I, I, I was thinking about it beforehand, and I completely forgot what she said. Uh, but she did a whole webinar on the neuroscience of inclusion. And she was saying that at our core, we have, she divided the brain into brain 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. And the brain 1.0 is the amygdala. That's the part of our brain that looks to take ourselves out of painful situations. This is the avoidance of things we don't like. This is where we separate into in-groups and out-groups, which is really where I think that commitment to being right is. Like, I'm going to be right about my belief to separate me from the people who, who believe something different so I can feel safe. And this works really well 3,000, 5,000, 20,000 years ago when the villagers down the road who maybe have different beliefs are going to come and take our cattle. They're going to come and take our crops. It doesn't work as well in an interconnected world where the people who live five blocks from me or have different beliefs, they're really not out to get me at all. But if I'm committed to being right, it creates that separation. She's saying that's a brain 1.0. That's our fight, flight, and freeze responses. Brain 2.0 is the basal ganglia, and this is where we're seeking pleasure. So that's where addictive behavior, that's where procrastination comes in. It's actually seeking out, oh, let me... Uh, there's another researcher, his name is Roman Kaznarek, and he talks about the marshmallow brain, which is, I'm going to, there's this famous study where kids were presented with, you can have a marshmallow now, you can have two if you wait 10 minutes. And like 80% of the kids took the marshmallow now, because this is a basal ganglia saying, there's food right in front of me. Like, I don't know when I'm going to eat again, which yeah. is again, evolutionarily 20,000 years ago, that makes a lot of sense. Even 400 years ago makes a lot of sense to, yeah. hey, I have food here now. She said that brain 3.0, 
which is our prefrontal cortex. Uh, that's where we're able to hold both of these, these thought patterns at the same time. To recognize, oh, there's my fight, flight, and freeze. There I'm trying to be right. I'm trying to create an in-group and an out-group so I feel safe. Oh, there's my brain 2.0, my basal ganglia. There it is wanting me to have the marshmallow now. Okay, so what do I want to do? That's the prefrontal cortex. Gotcha. What do I want to do with this information? That's the heightened awareness to choose versus purely reacting. And even then, okay, so evolutionarily, we've we've evolved to the point where we have that capability. And yet even then we can we're so susceptible to our brains taking over. And it's like you really have to ask yourself, is my conscious am I controlling my brain or is my brain controlling me? And I think that goes another like when we take it another step further, especially in the age of a technological revolution it's like then the technology in our hands can also like control us and i genuinely believe that we're the most advanced technology known to mankind and unless we master this technology uh the technology in our hands is going to master us and so like totally yeah so how do we combat that because i look back on my life and damn I'm an addict. I get addicted to anything and everything. I have to be so careful about the kind of information that I let in down to TV shows. I can't turn the TV on because that's a that's a dangerous game to be playing. Um, but I look back on some of my addictive behaviors, like playing this game called Homescapes, which is like Candy Crush, but Every time you win a level, you collect coins. And then with coins, you can buy furniture and stuff for your mansion. (laughs) (laughs) It got to a point where I was so addicted that I started, like, I ran out of lives and I would buy more lives. So I would just buy the furniture from the shop. And I spent about a total of $4,000 on that game. Wow. Yeah. And then to look back and be like, oh, shit. Because that's my brain 3.0 really reflecting on what the fuck I just did. So like, what are some techniques that we can use in order to become a little more aware? Because meditation is the one thing that works for me. Yeah, I mean, that's a such a great question. And I think uh, we're in this age where our attention is the greatest resource. And so everyone's trying to mine our attention. And there's there was this great... Uh, podcast from from NPR a few years ago. Um, I, can, I can never name it, remember the name of the podcast uh, on the media. And it was talking about how tech companies use behavior modification in order to gain more attention from us, in order to play into our addictive tendencies to profit on our attention. Mm-hmm. And so we're living in an age where there is like, we are the most valuable resources. Our attention is the most valuable resource. And so learning how to shortcut and interrupt the addictive uh, behavior is, is the greatest challenge. And I'm with you. Like I'll get hooked on a TV show and watch all of the seasons and feel like I'm accomplishing something while I'm doing it. <laughs> feel like, no, no, oh, this I've is gotta, research. Gotta, right. It's like, Oh, if I, if I keep watching, I'll finish it in a week. And it's like, it feels like an accomplishment uh, or I have a baseball game on my Xbox. And it's really the only, I don't play that X, Xbox, but every once in a while I'll play this baseball game and I'm obsessed with playing the full season. hundred, like, I don't know why I've been doing it since I was a kid. And I did it a few weeks ago. I played like 20 games in one day and I finished the season and I won these awards and I stepped away from it. I was like, that was really fun. 
And what purpose did it serve? I mean, it was fun. So there's definitely this outlet for fun. Um, and on occasion, that's okay. And at the same time, it felt like such an accomplishment. It had, had hijacked my attention and brought in that feeling of, of fulfillment and success that I might derive from things that actually matter. And I spend eight hours playing Xbox, which in an isolated instance, it's okay. I don't do that very often. Okay, that's good. <laughs> like it could happen more frequently. So, I mean, to get back to your question, how do we how do we interrupt this? It's uh, for me, it's a combination of being aware of when I'm getting hijacked. So noticing, oh, I have this big desire to go zone out, go on my phone, go on the television somehow asking the question, is that really what I want to do right now? So building in like a pause before indulging in the behavior. So that, that I find very useful. I think the other thing that works for me is actually limiting the possibility of doing it. So I try to put, I live in a studio apartment. I don't have that much space, but it's like when I go to bed, try to put my phone as far away from me as possible. Mm. And my bed is a no phone zone. So I don't use my phone in bed. That said, I sometimes do, but I really try my best to set this boundary where I'm not using my phone in a certain space or I've decided I'm not using my phone in the bathroom anymore. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm not because I would spend like a ton of time doing nothing, just scrolling on my phone, again, hijacking my attention. Uh, there was, I listened to another webinar through WBEX, which I, I just love their programming from this man, Nur Ayal who wrote the book Indistractable. And he said that 90% of our distraction is from an internal trigger. The 10% is from our notifications and external triggers. And so he was saying the way to shortcut our addictive behavior and our distraction is to get a handle on our internal triggers, which is usually like getting away from pain. So if I'm writing an email that's challenging, I notice, oh, I wanna pick up my phone. I wanna distract mm. myself from this email because I don't feel confident what I'm writing or it's a little confrontational and just noticing. I always think that the beginning of shifting of behavior is noticing when it's happening. So for those of you listening, the first step might be for a month, just notice every time you're hijacked, don't even do anything about it. Just notice, Oh, I was writing an email and I went and go play candy crush for 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, I mean, yes, there's so many, little things that you can do. One of the things that I do is, yeah, don't look at my phone for the first two hours of being awake because in the past I've picked up my phone as soon as I wake up and then I sit on the toilet for my morning poo-poo and next thing I know, two hours have passed by and poo-poo is dried up on my butt crack and it's not, it's no bueno. And then you, I really look at myself and I'm like, holy shit, PV. Wow. What is I, going? Yeah, like that's it's funny, but also not funny. Like, <laughs> where where did two hours go? I'm losing track of time. And I just wonder, like, you know, with the metaverse, for example, and VR, what what are we gonna do if we don't start teaching people how to take control of our brains? Because I just imagine a world where we're sitting, I don't know, in pods wearing VR in our diapers behind masks. <laughs> Wally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wally, yes. They're like, 
how do we circumvent this? And one of the things that's coming up for me is like, I think implementing it into education, like really just changing up how we're teaching children, because like education, we used to cultivate human beings. We used to nurture them in order for them to come out of school and build machinery. Um, Our system was built because of the industrial revolution. But as it currently stands, that system is now archaic. And realizing that this might be the end of human beings if we don't actually get this under control, if we don't actually have conversations like this and realize, wow, our nature might be the end of us. Well, the way I think about it, and I think you're spot on, is that if we don't understand our nature and if we don't understand nature as a whole, and we give completely into our nurture or our adaptive behaviors that will cripple actually what makes us human and then could lead to the end of the human race. That we're, it's, and this is where this interplay is so interesting because the way our society is functioning now, it's preying upon our nature in order to maximize the values of our nurture. And here in the United States, that's profitability, that's endless progress, uh, it's the stock market always going up. Um, it's just more and more money, more and more material goods. And the question is, well, is that actually good? Like, is that progress? And it was, that's where I'd say, like, that's our, na- our, that's our nurture hijacking our nature. Because our nature can play into that really well. That's the marshmallow brain. It's the buy now button. It's the, you know, looking at the stock portfolio and seeing it going up all the time. It's all of that instant gratification and having things instantaneous, it's all this new technology, which I always think, is anybody asking, is this actually good? Not, can this give us a lot of money and a lot of profit? But what's, what's the impact gonna be on our society in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years, in 100 years, in, in 500 years? Will we even be here in 500 years if we invest in this technology? Yeah. And- it's, I think those, those are the questions. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called The Good Ancestor by this guy, Roman Kiznarek. And it's asking those questions, which is how can we be good ancestors for the multitude of generations that could potentially come in the future? And, you know, are the cho- how, are, what, how are the choices we're making today impacting the people who don't yet exist on the planet? And... I really believe, I think this plays into what you're saying about education, that we need to be asking that question because a new app today, a new technological advancement today is awesome, but do we need it? Do we as a, as a species need it? Not only does it drive profits, is it really cool? Does it help us in some way? But what's, it, what's its long-term impact? And I think I've heard recently, we've reached the point where technology has outpaced our own adaption. And so we actually are adapting slower than our technology is, which is very problematic. I think that's ironic too, because the technology is it's coming out of our own minds and our own brains. We're creating it and yet we can't adapt to it. It's like it's taking over in a yeah. sense. There's so much to digest here because <laughs> but I think, yeah, part of it is education, honestly, and that like realizing that, wait, you can be the observer. 
you can be the observer of your mind, of your technology, and like how you want to move forward. So in, in your rethinking of education, what would like the pillars of, of PV's education plan be? Wowzers. Um, <laughs> I think there's a, I think it's important to teach how to use technology, like what it does, how addictive it can be. There's research now officially showing that like these, the effect that blue light has on our melatonin production and the dopamine hits that we get from notifications, it's more addictive than, you know, substances like alcohol and tobacco. And those things have age limits on them. So like, perhaps we should be teaching kids like, okay, this, use this intentionally. Because otherwise, mm. what if, like v- VR porn, for example, that's something that comes up a lot because that's our human nature, our animalistic nature can take over in that regard. That's not just the brain. I don't believe anyway. And if we're in that realm and where our animalistic nature combined with our addictive brain is just in that realm all the time, we're we're never going to come out of that realm to actually Mm. procreate. Another thing I think is important to teach is forgiveness and letting go. Because ultimately, I don't think we, a lot of people are not thinking about these kinds of things and they are stuck in there. They're trapped in their minds because so many of us live in the past. So many of us are trapped in our minds. And I've noticed in myself anyway, that the only reason I'm able to have these kinds of heady conversations and think on a big scale of like humanity and what's going on in the universe is because I've been able to clear out all of my own trauma and like, instead of living in the past and just letting go. Cause I remember the day I learned forgiveness. It was during a fight with my partner. And I just think to myself, wow. And it was, I realized in that moment, those are patterns. The reason I couldn't let go was because that's what I was taught. That's what was cultivated in me by the examples that were set for me. And so like teaching things like that, how to build relationships, because I genuinely believe, or for me anyway, that's like the meaning of life is relationships. That's what makes life so rich. And I used to think that there was a conscious conversation on the future of humanity. And I remember that day I was going, I had an argument with my partner and I went to, I laid down in bed and started crying. And then I thought to myself, wait, PV, why the fuck are you crying? You're an adult. It was just an argument. And so to pull myself up in those moments, like the hard rewiring, that's where you're disrupting the patterns, the human nature. Um, And in the conversation, I was super excited about being like, no, to uploading your consciousness. Fuck yeah, for sure. Then I don't have to feel emotions anymore. (laughs) Except now I look back and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. The spectrum of human emotion is like, it's beautiful. Like that's our nature and to nurture each parts of us appropriately. Because then I believe once you heal all of that and you're able to have these kinds of thoughts, that's a superpower. Mm. Then you're like vibrating at a higher frequency. Then you can like collapse the first three dimensions of space time into like a fourth dimension 
and actually create from energy, manifest your reality rather than trying to create from matter and chasing your dreams, if that makes any sense. Why are we teaching, not teaching this in schools? <laughs> what, would you, what would you teach in schools? Honestly, as a coach, what are you realizing? Like, Because I've also recently started coaching and there seems to be patterns among people. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's so many things and I think what I would teach has evolved over the years. A lot of the work I've done the past couple of years has actually been around how to just learn effectively. That it, at its core, coaching is a learning modality. It's to help, I, I think about it, it's to help my clients learn. Uh, I remember years ago, I had wine with a, a mentor of mine who's actually, he's one of the founders of the coaching profession. I didn't know that. He used to drive me to school to summer camp in New Mexico where I grew up. And many years later I discovered, oh, he's one of the, the founders of coaching. And what, before I went into coaching, we had, we got a glass of wine. He happened to be in New York city. And he, I remember we were sitting down and he asked me, he said, so what is coaching? And I said, well, it depends, you know, if you're a life coach or business coach or an executive coach, he said, no, it doesn't. He said, coaching is just about learning. And it was this massive light bulb in my brain because it opened up so much possibility. And so when I think about what I would teach is I would teach people to learn. Yes. And everybody learns differently. But at the core of learning is this cycle about action and reflection. And I found in my work that most people tend to fall on one of the poles. They're either all about action and they spend no time reflecting. Or they're all about reflection, which is me. Like I spent all my time reflecting, but I don't put that reflection into action all the time. And so one thing I would teach is how do you create a healthy action and reflection cycle so that you're trying new things, reflecting on it and trying new things again and consistently doing that because we learn through putting in reps. And so one thing I would teach in education is actually how to learn. Like create an environment for the students to actually figure out which what's the best way for me as an individual student to learn because how can someone learn if they don't actually know how to learn yeah and i think that would be foundation number one i think foundation number two like you talked about relationships i think how to be in relationship with people and how to get messy inside relationships and have challenging conversations and what i call clearing with people which is going to someone and saying and I've made up a story about X, Y, and Z. I want to let it go. And clearing it with that person. I, I've done it with friends where I've gone. You know, we had this inner, I, actually with one of my friends who I, I do a lot of, of partnership with. We had a conversation a few weeks ago after a, a men's group that we run together. And he mentioned something on our call afterwards. And uh, it just didn't sit right with me. And I remember going to him a few days later and saying, hey, can I clear with you? When, when you said this thing, it made me feel like you were going to leave. And I knew he wasn't. Like, I knew he was reacting, and he and I have an amazing friendship. So we both know neither of us going anywhere. But it came up for me. And to have that ability to be able to go to someone that you love, someone you care about, and say, hey, I was making up this story about you because of something you said. And I want to let it go. Uh, I think being able to have those kind of open relationships would be so valuable to teach in school. I think another one is how to ask for help. Yes. Uh, I think especially for men, uh, 
myself included, I don't like asking for help. I'll wander the grocery store for 40 minutes trying to find my the item I'm looking for rather than go to someone who works there and ask where it is. Uh, and I just think to back to my high school and college career and think about how many opportunities or how many more opportunities there would have been had I been taught how to ask for help or been taught that asking for help is okay and actually a courageous and powerful thing. Yes. And I think there's so many of those foundational skills that I would teach. And I actually believe the opportunities for that exist within our current system. It's simply that when I look at education, I think it does come out of this industrial revolution ideology, but so much of education is performance-based and it's driven by performance and it's not driven by learning. I think that is a big miss because the opportunity inside education is to learn. Even if someone's learning is, oh, I'm really motivated by performance. Like, awesome, that's huge. You're motivated by performance? Like, okay, we're gonna grade you really harshly then. We're gonna create <laughs> a plan so that you're really motivated. If someone's really motivated by learning, well, how do we scale that so that they're actually put in the best position to learn? Yes. And. So that's, that would be the shift for me. And I think a big part is just asking more questions. And I know that a lot of people are talking about this, that intelligence up until this point has been measured by how much you know, and that in the future, intelligence will be measured by how good your questions are. And we are entering uh, what a lot of people call the VUCA age, where it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's chaotic, and it's ambiguous. And so there aren't going to be a lot of answers. We don't know what the next 50 years are going to look like. I think about how technology has shifted in the last 15 years. I'm 30 now from when I was 15. I couldn't have imagined this. And so to think about the next 15 years, the next 30 years, where things are going to be moving faster mm -hmm. than they have in the last 15 years, I can't know what's going to happen. But can I ask the question, what's going to be different in 15 years? What has to change in the next 15 years? Uh, what in 15 years, what am I going to regret not doing today? That if we're asking more of those types of questions in education, I think it can really shift the way that us, us as humans think about the future. Instead of just thinking about the grade in three weeks, thinking about, well, how is what I'm studying now actually going to be valuable 10 years from now? Yes, exactly. And I'm one of those people like, mm, grades don't fucking motivate me at all. Like I could give a shit about <laughs> grades. I'm like, really, are you serious? Like, because as soon as I'm asked to prove myself, I'm like, uh, <laughs> and that's like, that's my nature. Because I think overall there's human nature, but then you have your own specific nature too. And I love that you said asking questions because I think it's important to ask yourself questions too. Like, wait, why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. And one question that really changed my entire perspective was not just what do I want to do with my life, but also who do I want to be? Because like, I want to be a learner. I'm like a lifelong learner. I spent a lot of my, most of my life in school. And I realize now that I'm just like the, a learner of life. I'm a student mm -hmm. of life. 
what impact do you think having being a student of life has on you and, and the people around you? I'm way less judgmental instead of being a know-it-all because there was this hump of where I had collected a lot of information in my brain and a lot of degrees, honestly. And I was like, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room, which is like when you let go of that, when you let go of that, that's like, I think when you're actually being smart because you there's always something to learn from other people. Um, and it, well, the impact it's had is that I've become a better listener. I've become a better mm. listener. It's part of why uh, my clients love me as a coach because I listen. I listen and I give unfiltered feedback when asked for it instead of sugarcoating. Because like life is harsh. And that's okay. I don't understand why, because we're cultivating this thing where we're like, oh, you know, you're the most special little thing on the face of this planet, which mm. is okay. I'm all for self-love, <laughs> but I think it's important to teach what love is, how to love, and even more importantly, how to be loved. Yes. Because sometimes, yeah, tough love is necessary. Um one of the things I, I think I would teach is discipline and not discipline like spanking, but discipline like self-discipline, because that I think is true freedom. And yeah, one example of I've decided that like, OK, PV, you eat a lot of sugar, you're addicted to sugar. And that's just something that I was brought up with. Health is not something that was necessarily a huge thing in my family. Uh, and in doing so. In really constricting myself and being like, no, think about what you're putting into your body. That's translated into other areas of my life, like where in the morning when my alarm goes off, I get up immediately without hitting snooze. And that's not something I plan to do, mm. which just shows to go goes to show that like neurons that fire together, wire together, and it translates into the rest of your life. And when you're trying to form habits over time, habit formation actually becomes easier because your your consciousness is gaining more and more control of your brain. Well, you're rewiring your neural pathways. Yes, exactly. And that I always say, and a lot of people in the personal professional development space will say this, that we bring ourselves everywhere we go. So it makes a ton of sense that as you rewire your neural pathway around not eating sugar, that showing up in more discipline in waking up with your alarm clock and probably in a lot of other areas where you're, you're actually rewiring that neural pathway around that marshmallow brain. So it's no longer, oh, there's a bag of sugar in front of me, let me eat it. Or it would, be, it would feel really good to sleep for another 15 minutes, but oh, what's the longer term impact of this? And that years ago in, in one development workshop I did, I remember, it was a really intense program. And after one of the days they came back and they asked us, so like, do you guys think you're changed? And I remember saying, yes, I'm different. I've changed. And they said, people don't change. Uh, your commitments change. And that has you show up differently. And for a long time, I bought into that. I thought, you know, people don't change. I am who I am. I have my reactions. But my mind has shifted over the past couple of years and that our neural pathways actually do change. Yes. There is brain plasticity, that our brains do shift over time. And I noticed that the things I react to are the things I've always reacted to. So there is a, 
a shift and change in the brain. I think people do change. And I think people also stay the same in that my reactions, the things that either were traumatic growing up or just left a mark, uh, I always think that we, we adapt behaviors as we grow up to protect ourselves from pain, shame, and trauma, that those behaviors are still there. They're my automatics. They're my mm -hmm. reactions. Uh, but through creating new neural pathways can actually short circuit those reactions, yes. create new ones. And it's just a, such an interesting dynamic between being able to shift both our nature and our nurture. Because so much of what I heard in what you're saying is the nurture you grew up with was health wasn't a, a value. Mm -hmm. And so that value, that nurture was then mapped onto your nature. See, and things like values, that is something that's been coming up a lot for me. I would, I feel like a class called Guiding Values would have been so fucking useful because I look at my values now because when I asked myself, who do I want to be? I didn't know the answer to that. It took some time that those answers don't come immediately. Um, and over time, asking myself questions about who I am made me realize, okay, I value peace, growth, and freedom. Those are three things I really, really fucking value to a point where other values like discipline, for example, actually are rooted in my value of freedom. And health, for example, are actually rooted in my value of peace. Because if I don't feel comfortable in my skin, if my joints are hurting because I'm overweight or I don't exercise, is that really peace? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So to like really go deep and question yourself. And I love that you're a reflector because, yeah, me too. Finding that balance is so hard. Here we are talking about neuroplasticity and yet at the same time. Getting it myself to do after I've reflected, um, it's a transition. And I'm learning that yeah. about myself, that like it's a transition. I can't, I'm not just yet capable of turning on, it on and off. Well, it's really easing into it because yeah. neuroplasticity happens through the action. That one of the best descriptions of, of creating new neural pathways I heard was, from a woman who lived in Minnesota or Wisconsin, she said, you know, here in the winter times, we get like six feet of snow. And I shovel my path to my mailbox, which is great. I've got this nice path to my mailbox. But if my check from work, it's mailed to the mailbox across the road. It's a lot of work to shovel a new pathway. But I can keep going to my mailbox, but there's no check there. And it's through that action, through the action reflection cycle, that the new pathway is a shoveling of the six week of snow across the road to the other mailbox. That's how you rewire neural pathways metaphorically. And it's a lot of work, uh, which is why coaching can be so valuable because it gives you the opportunity to work with somebody to be supported through changing that behavior. And it can be so challenging. I, I find it myself. I, after two years of COVID, I live alone in a studio apartment I'm shy anyway, so going out and, and meeting new people is really challenging. Yet my social circle has, has shrunk a great degree and also expanded, but expanded virtually. And so I now am faced with, I actually have to make new choices to put myself in a position to meet people. And I notice an incredible amount of resistance. <laughs> and it's like, I know this will make me happier. 
And it's so hard for me to get started. And that's those old neural pathways around afraid I'm not going to fit in. Uh, all the the narratives I have. People in New York like to stay up really late. <laughs> I like to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> like, all of these things that don't have to get in the way, but are convincing me not to start shoveling towards the mailbox across the road, even though that's where my check is. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. You know, this podcast is a perfect example of that for me, where I wanted to build the, ha- the habit of writing because I was like, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I keep fucking saying it. Um, I've got tons of ideas and then I would sit in front of the computer. It was just so hard to put my thoughts out there. And I realized, oh shit, I'm great at holding other people accountable. But when it comes to holding myself accountable, I actually need accountability. And so mm-hmm. I started doing this podcast. I was like, okay, the reason I want to write a book is because I have a message, but I can get my message out in other ways. And if I schedule things with people, then I can have these conversations, put my message out there and hold myself accountable because there's a little bit of shame attached to constantly canceling calls. (laughs) And and now this was, this started September after the Startup Island uh, summer camp, which was September 5th weekend. Um, And now it's like, it's so natural. I get so excited about it. In fact, I journal about it in the mornings when I have, podcast schedule I'm like I look I'm so looking forward to this it's gonna be a dope ass conversation (laughs) to hype myself up because affirmations work it's part of how you can rewire your brain yeah well the other thing I hear in it is you said that relationships are at the core of what it means to be human what it means to be alive and so what you've done is you've tapped into relationships as a way of of being motivated that relationships drive you And so sitting down in a room by yourself writing may not actually be a huge driver, but by leveraging your motivation around relationships, here you are. And I think that's something that anyone who's listening can pay attention to, which is how you do something really doesn't matter. That I've been working on a book for six years and I'm almost done, which is really exciting. Uh, But I've tried so many different things and had to figure out, okay, what are the things that I'm naturally good at that are going to allow me to do this? Oh, I really work well in partnership. Guess what? I'm writing the book with somebody, with uh, my friend Nick, who I run the the men's group with. And oh, I really like traveling by myself and like really immersing myself. Oh, okay. I'll go away by myself for a week every so often and go work and really figuring out, okay, what works for me? What is really motivating for me that I can step into rather than looking at how other people are doing it and trying to emulate them, that there's, there's a great, uh, let me actually, let me rewind and say this, that my dad works with coffee farmers and he's worked with coffee farmers for almost 30 years, more than 30 years since 1988, helping coffee farmers improve the quality of their lives. And the slogan for his organization, the Coffee Trust, is local solutions for local issues and local challenges. And it's all about asking the people in the community what they need and how they can solve their problem, their opportunity, their challenge. And I think it's the same for us as individuals. I always think about coaching as personal solutions to personal challenges. That what's worked for me isn't going to work for you. What's worked for me isn't going to work for my clients necessarily. But what we can do together is create a framework to tap into, oh, I'm really motivated by relationships. 
I want to, I want to write a book. Awesome. Like, how can you partner with somebody to go write that book? Uh, that, that will work for that person. It may not work for everybody. And it's so important to not get narrowly focused into, oh, this is the way it has to be. It doesn't have to be any way. It gets to be the way that's going to work best for each individual. Well, I'm starting to realize that our conscious conversation on the same topic led, led me to the same conclusion that when it comes to trying to balance your nature and your nurture, it starts with curiosity. Mm. Like you got to be curious about yourself. You have to ask questions to yourself and others. Like, don't be afraid to ask for help from others and yourself. Like you can help yourself, believe it or not. Yes. And having that dialogue with yourself is just so important. So Jake, if more people want to find out about what you're doing and they want to reach out for your coaching services, where can they find you? So my website is really easy. It's jakefishbein.com. It's F-I-S-H-B-E-I-N.com, jakefishbein.com. And email me at jake at jakefishbein.com. You can find me on Instagram. I'm not really on Instagram that much. It's one of the things I've cut out, but I'm at the coach Jake. And I'm also sharing a lot on LinkedIn. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I actually sharing excerpts from a few drafts of the novel that Nick and I have been working on. And every once in a while, we'll do an event. We have a series where we talk about men and topics. So we've talked about men and vulnerability, men and authenticity, men and intimacy, men and friendship, and men in the cave. And it's very much like this. We just have a dialogue about these topics. So we're on a bit of a hiatus now, but we'll pick up at some point in the future. So LinkedIn is really where you can find a lot of my content. Um, so your book really quick, is that what it's about as well? Just all the topics you discussed? The book is a novel okay. and it's a novel about a men's group. And it's about at its core, it's about the impact that being vulnerable and honest has for men in their relationships, their relationships, romantically, friendships, family. And it's meant to, for me, it's always meant to inspire all people to trust themselves, to live authentically and vulnerably and step into the arena in their lives. And it's about one man, uh, his journey, uh, his best friend, and their relationship through being in this group, among many other things. And like I said, I've been working on it for six years. So it's a, a conglomeration. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a collection, using that one correctly of so many of my experience over the last six years, all in one place, really excited for it to be finished and in the process of looking up and researching agents right now to begin pitching it to. All right, well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show and having such a vulnerable and rich conversation. I think a lot of people will benefit from this. Absolutely, PV, it was a real pleasure. Really an awesome time talking about nature versus nurture.